Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And an official welcome to the summer, I feel. It feels like it's really kicking off now. I keep buying strawberries that are on offer at Sainsbury's. Wimbledon is going on, apparently. Um, (laughs) And I've got blisters on my feet from wearing the same sandals over and over again. I don't know what I'm going to do about the blister problem. I've got blisters all over my feet and it's such an anathema to me because I'm wearing the same shoes I've had for years. Do you think it's caused by hot feet? Mm. Trying to get swollen, to swollen little trotters. Got half a packet of Compede on my right foot. Ooh. Very expensive problem. Oh, they are expensive, Compede. Why are they too expensive? So clever though when you see the little blister bubbling up on the second the skin. Yeah. Do you like a Compede, Charlie? Yes. Correct answer. <laughs> Since we've been gone, two massive cultural events have happened. Glastonbury and Goop's Wellness Festival, where tickets cost up to £4,500. I bought a ticket to it. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really thought you'd fall for that. Obviously I'm not going to fall for that. At Glastonbury, people complained that the plastic ban meant queuing to fill up water bottles for 40 minutes. Progress takes time, people, she says, as someone who didn't spend the heatwave queuing for water, but sat in a paddling pool on her small patch of London astroturf. Only 500 tents were left behind this year out of 55,000, which still sounds like quite a lot, but when you compare it to 2015, when 5,500 tents were left behind, it actually shows that I think people are becoming so much more cognizant mm. of um, litter and what they leave behind, and it meant that 99% of the tents were taken home. If you want to read something really lovely on Glastonbury and its history, may I recommend Pete Perfidis's 17-part tweet thread about attending the festival every year since 1992. That's a 27-year tenure, incidentally. Oh, I must read that. I'll link it in the show notes. It's amazing. Can I circle back just very briefly to your patch of AstroTurf? Because I'd like the listeners to know one of my favourite facts about you, which is that Pandora has to hoover her garden. (laughs) That's how you keep AstroTurf clean, I think. I just love you the have thought. to wash the AstroTurf with fairy liquid. I just love the thought of you merrily going back and forth like the shaken vacuum. I find AstroTurf unbelievably depressing, but um, <laughs> apparently you are really stupid if you don't have AstroTurf in a London garden when you have kids, so... There you go. Some news highlights from the last few weeks. The Church of England has elected its first female black bishop, Rose Hudson Wilkin. Trials of the first male hormonal contraceptive, a gel spread over the body, is underway, with the gel applied daily to the chest, shoulders and upper arms, which switches off sperm production, being tested by 450 couples at centres in the UK, Sweden, Chile and Kenya. And San Francisco has a vaping ban, your jewel is not welcome there, Dolly, coming into effect in 2020. Vaping bans have actually been condemned in an independent report by Public Health England. Their 2015 review concluded that e-cigarettes were 95% less harmful than nicotine. So there are lots of people who are conflicted over San Fran's ban. And I wonder where we'll be next. I'm puffing on one right now, so I really hope that this doesn't come into play in the high-low studio the dual ban it won't come into play in the high-low studio but what will you do if you go to san francisco um so wait so you can't is it just in public spaces yeah i'm guessing that it'd be quite handmade style for them to be breaking into your kitchen while you're dueling i went on a jog the other day and i took my jewel that's oh bad, dolly that's too much i know i know do you vape while you do a poo pandora it's about time we mentioned the women's world cup but you're still so pleased with yourself, that little joke, aren't you? <laughs> so scatological all the time. We're mentioning the World Cup and our football-loving producer, DJ CJ, has been updating us on it weekly. Or bi-weekly, maybe even. Um, possibly a little bit 
too much, I would say, but we still appreciated it nonetheless. The cup was won by the USA, who scored two second half goals to beat the Netherlands in Lyon to win a record fourth World Cup title. Shortly after the final whistle confirmed that the US women had received their fourth World Cup victory, the packed exuberant crowd inside France's Stade de Lyon went from cheering to chanting equal pay. This is because in March, 28 members of the 2015 women's team, including current players Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino, sued the US Soccer Federation over gender discrimination. Molly Levinson, the spokesperson for the players in their equal pay lawsuit, said in a statement, At this moment of tremendous pride for America, the sad equation remains all too clear and Americans won't stand for it anymore. These athletes generate more revenue and garner higher TV ratings but get paid less simply because they're women. It's time for the Federation to correct this disparity once and for all. Astonishingly, according to the New York Times, the prize money for this year's Women's World Cup is $30 million. The Men's 2018 World Cup had $400 million. God, that is astonishing. I know. I'm guessing it's related to how much they can monetize each World Cup or the sponsorship or the viewership attached. But it's a it's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation, mm. isn't it? Because... Mm. Um, money shows value Mm. a devastating picture of the bodies of a drowned salvadorian father and his daughter on the banks of the rio grande has been doing the rounds reigniting the debate about whether or not it is irresponsible for media outlets to show pictures of dead bodies or if it is necessary to remind us of the human cost of immigration policies You may remember the picture of three-year-old Alan Curdy, who drowned in the Mediterranean Sea, and that was a really heartbreaking picture. I'm honestly conflicted over this. Someone pointed out quite pertinently, I thought, that showing the picture could be effective in countries where that immigration is pertinent. For example, in the US, in this case, because it's about their Mexico-US border control, but that it could be sensationalist in other parts of the world where we have no policy-making power. Either way, I sobbed for a long time looking at that picture. 23-month-old Valeria is tucked into her father, 25-year-old pizza chef Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez's T-shirt as he swam across the river from El Salvador with his toddler on his back as they were attempting to cross into Texas from Mexico. His wife commented very movingly that they died in each other's arms. In happier news, more than 1,000 new courts are to be established in Pakistan, regularly ranked as one of the most dangerous countries in the world for women, to hear cases of violence against women. A pilot scheme in Lahore has been deemed a success, though some activists are sceptical about how much scope there will be for women to speak freely as the courts are in the same buildings as the regular courts and staffed by the same judges. And in an update that will jar fans, Kirsty Young has announced that she is leaving Desert Island Discs for good Dolly, where were you when you found this out and how do you feel about it now? I'm obviously devastated because it's an end of an era and I just love that show and I loved Kirsty as its presenter. But I do think Lauren Laverne's doing a really, really good job um, and all things must end. <laughs> Very diplomatic. So I'm being measured about it. <laughs> It has been announced that Halle Bailey, who is a 19-year-old actor and one of Beyoncé's protégés, will be cast as the first ever Black Little Mermaid. A huge portion of the internet was ceremonious about the news, with Halle Berry tweeting, In case you need a reminder, Halle's get it done. There was also an outpouring of love from people like Chrissy Teigen and Nicki Minaj. However, depressingly, there was a backlash with the hashtag NotMyAerial circulating on Twitter. Lots of people were disguising their racism in pedantry, saying that the original mermaid in Hans Christian Andersen's story was blonde and blue-eyed. Neither Disney nor Hallie publicly addressed the comments, but Freeform, a Disney network with one million followers, wrote the following statement. Yes, the original author of The Little Mermaid was Danish. Ariel is a mermaid. She lives in an underwater kingdom in international waters and can legit swim wherever she wants. But for the sake of argument, let's say that Ariel too is Danish. Danish mermaids can be black because Danish people can be black. Ariel can sneak up to the surface at any time with her pals Scuttle and the Jamaican crab Sebastian, sorry Flounder, and keep that bronze base tight. Black Danish people and thus merfolk can also genetically have red hair. But spoiler alert, bring it back to the top, the character of Ariel is a work of fiction. So after all this is said and done, you still cannot get past the idea that choosing the incredible, sensational, highly talented, gorgeous Halle Bailey is anything other than the inspired casting that it is because she doesn't look like the cartoon one, oh boy, do I have some news for you about you. I was really disappointed by this. It's so obvious to me that this 
shouldn't really be a radical move at all. It's amazing that this is only the, the second black Disney princess in 2019. Disney is the sort of canvas for so much childhood imagination and storytelling and dreaming and also this might sound overblown but kind of how you learn about the world when you're a very little kid and it certainly was when I was a child and it's so obviously isolating and othering for little girls and boys to not see themselves reflected in that particularly as Freeform touch on in their statement when these characters are fictional and This is culture that's being consumed predominantly by children. And as I say, teaching them about how the world works, albeit in a fantastical setting, I think that's even more of a responsibility to make it reflective of the diversity of real life. It's interesting as well, because Hans Christian Andersen was like famously a, and this is relevant for our later segment, a serious eccentric. He um, lived very outside the kind of conventions of society. And somehow some people being racist are serving loyalty to him. I was going to say, I bet they him. don't know anything exactly. about Hans Christian Andersen. It just seems like a moot point because almost all stories in popular culture are perceived to be white or drawn to be white because art that was given a platform for a long time was almost exclusively made by white people. The art that wasn't made by white people just wasn't platformed in the same way. If we don't diversify from that and understand why these characters are often shown or assumed to be white, then we don't progress at all. Exactly. It goes back to what the producer of... Uh, Year of the Rabbit, Hannah Mackay tweeted um, recently, which I talked about on the show, which is, we only understand history from the culture in which it's been presented to us, which so often is a lie, whether we like it or not. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? Last week's author special, Debunking Wellness Myths with Is Butter a Carb Dietitians, Rosie Saunton, Helen West, resonated with one listener who wrote in with her story of how irritating it was when people reacted to her husband's brain tumour diagnosis with wellness suggestions and dubious nutritional advice. He was losing a lot of weight and suffering with sickness during the treatment, but I lost count of the amount of times people asked if we'd tried turmeric tablets, no sugar, no processed food, homemade ginger biscuits for sickness. Was I making wholesome meals? I was working full time, FYI, during this six month period. And had we cut out red meat? Not to mention those who implied what you eat can actually have caused the tumour, which was infuriating. It was a huge relief when the properly trained hospital nutritionist said he should eat whatever he feels he has the appetite for to increase the calories, full fat, everything. What he fancied was comfort food like shepherd's pie, ready-made custard, beans on toast, microwave M&S dinners were a saviour for us both. With the guidance of the nutritionist, I didn't feel guilty for not cooking, spending my weekends in Holland and Barrett or not spending a fortune on expensive organic meals during a very difficult time. Thank you so much for writing in with that. In other food news, excitingly, I was provided with a vital snack alert in my quest to find the best salt and vinegar crisps yet from Michelle and her son, Joe, who've discovered chippies by Golden Wonder. I've never heard of chippies. Me neither, but apparently they usurp all our previous forays into the saltiest and most vinegary salt and vinegar crisps. Michelle does warn that they should really have a warning on them because they're so strong it's almost painful and actually cause a sweat. (laughs) I'm determined to find them now and give them a try. The criminal barrister wrote in with a perspective on the Bojo discussion and the mistaken idea that the neighbours weren't meddling from two weeks ago. An alarming number of domestic abuse cases I have been involved with are discontinued at the investigation stage or halted at the trial stage because victims are unwilling to give evidence. Often the victim's concern is that they won't be believed. It's one word against another. In such cases, there is rarely independent evidence. Where there is independent evidence, it often comes from a neighbour. And when they give evidence, not only may they have saved someone from danger, they may provide an objective perspective which shines light on the truth of what happens. Victims who worry that their account won't be believed may be encouraged to give evidence by the knowledge that someone independent was also there and are likely to tell the court what really happened. And we had a few emails saying that sometimes, actually, it's comforting to stumble across fellow Brits whilst on holiday. I am usually one to cringe at the sight of signs advertising English cooked breakfast or proper British pub while abroad and tend to run away from mingling with co-citizens. So I shocked myself recently when I found myself at the bar of Molly Malone's in Hiroshima ordering (laughs) Tyrrell's cheese and onion crisps, bangers and mash and a cup of tea and smiling to myself upon overhearing Donalove, fancy another pint... Although I still shiver at the us Brits stick together attitude whilst overseas, I do believe that there is some comfort in feeling a sense of familiarity and belonging somewhere. And so now instead of wincing at the sight of a sunburnt Brit wandering up the beach with a pina colada, I simply think of home and all the things I miss. Hiroshima. (laughs) I think I understand that, actually. 
each to their own. What have you been enjoying this week while you were away in Cornwall, Panda? I read a depressing but riveting book over the course of one evening called The New Me by Halle Butler, which reminded me a lot of Otessa Moshveg's Eileen. Millie is a 30-year-old temp in Chicago who dreams of the elusive permanent status while doing an unnaturally boring job for a woman who spends all day dreaming about how to fire her. It's a pretty existential novel. At one point she says, At my desk I sit and slowly collect money that I can use to pay the rent on my apartment and on food so that I can continue to live and continue to come to this room and sit at this desk and slowly collect money. And it is about the failure, I think, of a lot of things. Neoliberalism, individualism capitalism, all the isms, the shift economy, the idea that you love your job, the idea perhaps that you should or could be happy. Millie has one friend who is horrible to her and for a while she had a boyfriend who was also horrible to her. Her internal monologue is sour and furious and her outward disposition so ingratiating that as Gia Tolentino wrote for The New Yorker, you almost start to wonder that if anyone who says thanks to you is actually thinking, fuck you, (laughs) really gets into your brain. It's also as funny as it is bleak with a lot of satire. At one point, Millie says that she loves temp work, when actually it's the only work she can get, for the slight atmospheric changes. The new offices and co-workers provide a nice illusion of variety, like how people switch out their cat's wet food from chicken to liver to sea bass, but in the end, it's all just flavoured anus. (laughs) Oh my God. I just want to read a page from the beginning of the book as you really get an insight. Dolly, I think you'd love this book. So she's tamping in a furniture showroom and um, she's in the kitchen with a load of um, women. The one in the top knot and a tunic looks down and laughs. Oh my God, you guys, look at me. I'm such a hipster. Another smiles, barely containing her disgust and says, no, you look cute with her words and oh my God, shut the fuck up with her eyes. One of them leans over her immersion blended meal, laughs with strain and says, referring to a chandelier on the showroom floor, where I come from, you can get a house for 20,000. A glob of green puree hangs from the fuzz of her mohair sweater right by the boob. No one responds. They start talking about a woman who works down the hall. She used to work here and they all hate her. Apparently she really likes chrome and has no friends. One of them slides an open catalogue across the table and says, isn't that so trashy? It's a chrome coffee table, indistinguishable to me from the rest of the wares. The whole scene is a bitter cliché. The expectations and ego barely hidden behind the flimsy presentation of friendliness. My pits are slick and my face smells like a bagel. (laughs) (laughs) Hallie Butler, the author, is also pretty interesting. Um... There was an interview with her in New York magazine back in March where she describes writing for money as gross. You can read it online. I'll link in the show notes. We're going to be seeing a lot more of her, I think. Another book I raced through last week is The Faulkner by Dana Chapnick. It's completely gorgeous and I really, really hope it makes an impact here because I think it's such a fresh take on the building's roman, so a coming-of-age story. It's set in the 90s and the protagonist is 17-year-old Lucy Adler, a Jewish-Italian basketball-mad New Yorker who is in love with her best friend Percy from one of Manhattan's most prestigious families. Lucy attends a Gossip Girl-esque school but she treads the brilliant line of being analytical about the world it inhabits it's not really her own background and how she exists within it it's absolutely filled with beautiful quotable lines my copy is covered in pencil how old do you have to get to to stop feeling like something magical is just around the corner my cousin Violet says you can't stay forever young but you can stay forever open to wonder and here's another one that I thought was lovely Nietzsche says that the most wonderful kind of beauty is the kind that infiltrates the mind and heart gradually. He calls it the slow arrow of beauty, the kind of beauty that maybe doesn't register at first, but then you find it lingering in your senses. And what a wonderful sentiment, one I wish I could believe, but I'd rather have the beauty of a bullet. It's just another really beautiful book. Both of them I really, really recommend. Amazing debuts. I really enjoyed and learned lots from a conversation between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 29-year-old Democrat who's making waves in American politics, and Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist in The Guardian magazine. Climate change is not something I know loads about. I'm really interested in it. And like many people, I'm making small changes. No plastic bags at the supermarket, carrying a reusable water bottle, using reusable straws, buying eco-friendly baby nappies and wipes. But the systemic issues of climate change, I don't know a lot about. And I learned tons from this piece. 
about the oil lobby, which is huge in the US as it funds the Republican Party, about fracking, about climate change deniers. It's such a brilliant, important piece. And it was conducted across Skype, as Greta doesn't take aeroplanes for climate reasons. And I will link to that in the show notes. I was very moved and enraged by a Sunday Times piece on Broadwater Farm, an estate in Tottenham that became notorious for riots in the 1980s. The living conditions on this estate are very often horrendous. It failed the post-Grenfell cladding test, so 200 families will have to be rehoused if they demolish them. And the Sunday Times rang Haringey Council after they discovered that a single mother living with her five children had no hot water or heating for a year. We meet the frankly incredible-sounding Dawn Ferdinand, who is the head teacher of Willow Primary School, attended by Broadwater Farm Kids, who is trying to find a way to stretch her budget so that she could keep the school open all school holidays as well, as so many children dread the school holidays there. It's too dangerous for them to play outside on the estate and their parents can't afford to take them swimming or do other activities. One mother says they might go swimming once in the summer. So the Sunday Times has started a fundraiser so that pupils can go on day trips. £200 takes a group of 30 children swimming, 250 supports a street play, 285 takes a group trampoline and so on and so forth. That's amazing. The Hilo donated £50 today and if you have any spare pounds, it's a very worthy cause. We can't support everything and in fact it's something the Sunday Times said... um, when they were asked why they were supporting this particular school um, which is you can't support everything and this is just one school but it's something as a mother myself I'm aware of the immense privilege my child has where she'll always be able to go swimming if she wants to and she'll always be able to play in the garden the link to fundraise is justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash broadwater farm and I will link to that in the show notes what have you been enjoying Dolly? I had a radically spiritual experience this Sunday at a Curzon cinema when I went to watch the Aretha Franklin concert documentary Amazing Grace. The film is a concert, it's more like a church service really, uh, that was a live album recording of Aretha Franklin singing in the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in LA in 1972. Panda, you would love the kind of the the details of the time in the film there's one point where they're cross shooting and you can even see the cameraman who's wearing like a huge peter pan collar brown cord flares and has this massive camera on his shoulder even like upholstery of the church all the clothes of the people in the congregation aretha franklin is kind of covered in glitter and sequins throughout it it's an amazing uh, capsule of that kind of 70s aesthetic She's accompanied uh, throughout the concert by the Southern California Community Choir, who are just the most incredible gospel choir who sit behind her. And they're directed by Alexander Hamilton. Uh, And she, Aretha Franklin, sings from the lectern to a mostly African-American audience. Dr. James Cleveland, who was a preacher and gospel singer uh, and is often called the King of Gospel, appears as a featured singer and also accompanies her on the piano and also kind of is the MC of the event. It was directed, uh, the event was directed and the film was directed by Sidney Polak and uh, it's amazing when the producer names come up at the end. If you do go and see it, do watch to the end of the credits because Spike Lee's name appears, Lorne Michaels' name appears. uh, So it was obviously a very kind of starry production. The concert was given and the recordings were made over two nights. On the second night, you can see Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts in the audience <laughs> uh, looking kind of sheepish because they really are getting into it, into the kind of communal atmosphere of that concert. And it was highly, highly, it felt like quite sacred and very spirited. Uh, and you can see them kind of dancing and singing and clapping and then looking more sheepish whenever a camera comes towards them. And Mick Jagger obviously famously was a huge fan of soul and blues and gospel music and kind of really studied black performers uh, of the time of his heyday that he kind of tried to emulate in his performances. The footage was abandoned for years and years and years uh, because they didn't use clapperboards when they were filming it so there was there was a it was a nightmare syncing the sound and the visuals and then after Aretha's death it was revisited and with a lot of kind of careful work it was edited down and synced and it's just created this beautiful feature length film the singing itself is spine tingling to use a horrible cliche but I can't think of any other way to describe it I had goosebumps uh, throughout most of her singing and she is 
very uncharacteristically taciturn throughout the whole thing because she's obviously known as being kind of a bit of a diva and a bit of a presence. I think she was 29 when it was uh, recorded. And her niece, um, Sabrina Owens, who controls her estate, said to The Guardian, the reason, the reason she's so quiet, you hear her literally say two lines throughout the whole thing and her eyes are closed or she's looking kind of gazing out on the horizon and her niece said it's because she was there for a church service. She was a, a deep kind of believer and uh, it she it was a for her it was a spiritual experience that album rather than a kind of performative one and you really see her being kind of taken by something higher I think you might remember that when we did our first episode back after the summer last year Aretha Franklin had died during that time and I talked mm. about a great fresh air episode in which Terry Gross talks about her life as a performer and as a woman and they play an archive interview with her. And I think I inserted it into the podcast. I inserted a clip of her father, Aretha Franklin's father, who was a very famous um, speaker, a preacher. Um, and he had this kind of real presence uh, that made him very famous. And he had sort of women that would follow him around from church to church and sit in the front pews and have to kind of be revived by smelling salts. So it was this amazing moment about three quarters of the way through the film where they introduce Aretha Franklin's father and he comes in and he is a devastatingly handsome man. It's He has an astonishing presence and he speaks from the lectern. He gives kind of a, a sermon. Sadly, I've since read a lot about him and his relationship with Aretha since I watched the film and I think there are some very, very dark allegations against him as a man. Um, but you really do see their relationship. And Aretha Franklin learnt how to sing really because she he took her on the road when she was 12 and she would go perform uh, wherever he was giving his sermons. There's a very moving moment where Aretha Franklin goes to sit at the piano and she's pouring with sweat because she's done a very kind of emotionally strenuous uh, set of performances and her father takes a handkerchief while she starts singing and just goes over and mops her whole face and her neck. And it's clear that she really is in awe of him as a man, but also as this kind of revered performer and, you know, man of God. The most moving sequence in it is, which you can see a snippet of in the trailer, is Aretha Franklin's performance of Amazing Grace, which... I just could not stop crying um, through and lots of people in the cinema was, were crying too and James Cleveland introduces it with a kind of uh, nod to the civil rights movement. It, I know I'm sounding so preachy about this film but it was just so moving and it's enough to make you believe in something higher quite frankly and even if you don't come out believing in a God you will definitely come out believing in the resilience and the holiness of the human soul so I could not recommend that highly. I'm going to go and watch the trailer is that where I can see her sing Amazing yeah, Grace yeah and now and you can also listen to the album of course which in fact I think we should probably play out to one of the songs CJ I've also just discovered Radio 4's book club and I cannot believe I've only just found this in the archive of the podcast store it's so up our street Pandora my mum has been listening to it for years um, and I think it's going to become your new obsession. It's a Radio 4 programme in which authors talk about a book that they wrote that was somehow defining sometime after they've crested the wave of its success. It's hosted by James Naughty. I actually don't know if it's still hosted by him now. I've been listening to archive episodes, the ones I was listening to. But it's still going on him. now. It's still going on now. It's hosted in front of a live audience who ask the author questions and give their thoughts and analysis on the book and sometimes share what it has meant for them personally it's utterly fascinating hearing authors reflect on these kind of seminal huge historic works with some distance from it and also respond to how it affected their readers uh, the episode on one day with david nichols is brilliant i loved hearing about why he chose the specific structure of the of revisiting the one day every year in one day and it makes so much sense it's he said it's because he wanted to write um, a big sprawling love story but he wanted to access their relationship through non-cliched events so he said what happens if you just pick a random day every year and though the day that you pick is not the day where you get married it's not the day of the birth of your first child it's not the day you move in together it's all these other days where so much other very interesting and telling stuff 
and seismic stuff happen in a relationship that just happen on, you know, Tuesdays or St. Swithin's days as he chooses for that story. In fact, he also says, it's so interesting hearing about the kind of machinations of publishing as well. It was originally called St. Swithin's Day and then his marketing team persuaded him <laughs> to change it to one day and he agrees that was the right decision. I love listening to Jermaine Greer on The Female Eunuch. Uh, she talks about her slight sadness, actually, that it's still seen as such a fundamental feminist text and still seen as relevant to today's problems. When was um, that episode? Just because obviously the kind of public rep- reputation of Jermaine Greer is so different yeah. now. Yeah, it to... was slightly, it was before her kind of huge undoing, really. Um, I think it was 2010, I may be wrong. Um, but... Uh, Whatever your thoughts on Jermaine Greer, I don't feel very fondly towards her at the moment, obviously, because of um, things that she said in recent years. But the female eunuch was such an important part of forming my feminism as um, a teenage girl. And I really enjoyed listening to her talk about all the decisions that she made when she was making that work. But I just found it very interesting that that she was disappointed that it's still seen as such an essential piece of thinking, because what she said was is that she was hoping that feminism would have moved on so much and there would have been so many other definitive and seminal texts, which many people will say there have been, that the female eunuch almost becomes a thing of the past. I think that was so many, though, kind of of those seminal texts that still feel like they could a lot of it could be written today and still be relevant. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir's Second mm. Sex, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. I mean, a lot of the books that I've been reading recently from 20, 30 years ago, when it comes to... Um, women are we definitely um are working more and earning more and have more of those choices on paper but all of those like oh my god I mean even Virginia Woolf writing Mm. A Room of One's Own in 1929 I mean there's so much that's still relevant in these texts so I'm not Mm. surprised in short the episode that I adored was Zadie Smith talking about white teeth I've done the calculations and I reckon she was 30 when she was talking about white teeth your age (laughs) yeah and she was obviously talking about a book that she wrote I mean I think she embarked on white teeth when she was 19 and then finished it in her very early 20s um she's incredibly uh aware of the books well what she perceives as short as shortcomings and I have to say I think she is too self-effacing at times actually which obviously I don't think is affected I think that she's just a very brutal critic on her on her younger writing self um, and she talks about kind of how she'd do it differently now she said that she felt that she was challenged by one of the people in the audience who said that she presented a bit of a utopia of an integrated society in Wilsdon um, and she said she she defends it slightly and says that, that she has seen that in Wilsdon, um, but she also says that perhaps that was a kind of youthful optimism. Do you know what I would say is in um, where she's writing about is very much the area I live in, and actually there is, compared to anywhere else I've been, um, an integration in terms of... That's what of, she said. Yeah, I, t- I don't think that is youthful optimism. I mean, if, if, you, if you want to see all different people from all walks of life and uh, all skin colours and every type of different person go to my local sports centre. I, I, I think that the borough that we're in is um, incredibly and happily diverse, mm. actually. Mm. She also expressed a degree of regret about how she relied on caricature, she feels, to create um, some of the characters and family members in that book. But she said that that's what you have to do when your understanding of the world is so limited. As such a young woman, you have to slightly rely on cliché or what you've read about or heard about rather than what you've experienced. Um, So, yeah, I did enjoy... I did enjoy her reflections... uh, on that book because I think the whole world is so in love with that book it's interesting to hear the writer so often is the case the writer find things in it that they're not so in love with but it's a great celebration of a really excellent book as well the clip I want to insert is her speaking about her complicated feelings towards the idea of black role models Um, this is something I've heard her speak about before and I find her thoughts on it very interesting she articulates in this particular clip how she thinks that owners should be less on specific role models for specific groups of people but rather that culture should belong to everyone and that everyone should be allowed to be inspired by emulate or learn from people who've had different experiences to them as well as those who represent them more clearly one of the big mistakes 
and it's too late to take this back now, but minority communities hooked onto the idea of role models and also the idea of correct speech or correct behaviour in the 80s and 90s in a way that I think was just an unbelievably fundamental mistake. It's why I never, when people say to me, you're such a role model for young black girls writing, role models are useless. If you can only be a role model, then... It's like if, if I can only respond to role models who are like me, then I can't like Virginia Woolf, then I can't like Nabokov. The idea of identity roles are, is just utter nonsense. What you need is black children and Asian children feeling that anything within a culture that they are interested in, they can respond to. Not that to read Shakespeare is being white or not to read Nabokov is like acting non-black. That's a mistake. I really enjoyed Phoebe Waller-Bridge's return episode on How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. I loved that episode and it generated a lot of news headlines yeah. too. Page three of The Guardian on privilege. There's a very, very emotional conversation between her and Elizabeth about the miscarriage scene, which is in episode one of series two, because... Phoebe wrote the scene in which Fleabag's sister Claire has a miscarriage in a restaurant and it's a very painful scene but also has a lot of kind of dark comedy to it as well and um, Phoebe, they talk in, in this conversation they talk about the fact that Phoebe wrote this scene and then realised afterwards that she had basically rewritten a story that Elizabeth had told her which was Elizabeth's experience of her own miscarriage and Phoebe rang her and said, I've just realised that I have um, been inspired by something that you told me. And Elizabeth so generously and so graciously said, of course, write about it. And it was such an important experience for her and a defining experience and an experience that so many women have. She felt like it would be a useful thing for Phoebe to explore that in a scripted show. So it was a very moving conversation and I think it says a lot about their friendship and how we share stories and you know the nature of sisterhood really and um, how our experiences feed into our creative work Uh, as you mentioned she talks about privilege uh, which I've never heard her address before and I wanted to play this clip in which she talks about how it plays into her work and whether it should be used to define or, as she says, undermine her work. And I think the distinctions that she makes between the privileged space to make work and the quality or substance of the work itself are very compelling. It feels like lack of opportunity is the thing that drives that. When people feel like I would never have had the opportunity to make my flea bag if I hadn't been in the position that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is in, which is absolutely probably true that loads of people don't. And I think if that's where it comes from, then I'm I'm really sympathetic to that feeling. But when it's about the actual work and about the actual words on the page and the writing and stuff, and it's a criticism of that, then I take umbrage because that's about a craft and a story that's being told. And to criticise a story on the basis of where the author had come from or how privileged the author is undermines the story. I've never pretended that I'm not. Um, from a privileged position, I really know that I am. I mean, my God, I've had not only from the point of view that, you know, I got to go to nice schools and live in London, but I've also had the love and support of my family. I mean, I was perfectly set up to have success in the world. But then I also then from that point had to really, really work for it. And it's not like my privilege created Fleabag. I created Fleabag, but from a point of place in my life where I was able to sit and write and I was able to take the time. I was around people who could support that. And the work itself is not a product of that, I think. It's a product of whoever I... And I like to think that whatever life I'd lived, wherever I'd been born or brought up, I would still have written if I'd been given the encouragement. And actually, that's the thing that I care about, is encouraging people to do it. I think the distinctions she makes between the privileged space to make work and the quality or substance of the work itself are very interesting. I have to say I'm not sure I agree with them. I don't think they're as clear-cut, perhaps, as um, she... Yeah, they're interconnected. Yeah, because basically the privileged space to create work work is everything. It's literally everything. So I don't know if I entirely agree with her, but I like that she's inviting us into her thoughts on it and I think she's thinking about the complexities of it in a thoughtful way and I think that's really interesting in and as of itself because it's a word that we use with wild abandon at the moment it's often applied um 
uh, inaccurately or unthoughtfully and having some sort of deconstruction, even if it's, you know, with an opinion that you don't totally agree with, I think is a brave and necessary yeah. thing to do. Something you said to me recently I think is really interesting is when certain qualities, things that should be talked about are weaponized. Mm. And so the idea of um, her privilege, uh, she feels maybe undermining her work, um, even if it has created that work. I think it's really complicated, but I'm, I'm glad that she spoke about it. It is really complicated. And as I say, there's, a, there's stuff that she says that I really don't agree with, but... I totally agree with you and I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think we really really need to sort of, we need to deconstruct this word privilege and its semantics and what it really means. Because I think semantically, I think we've got very lost with that word and how we well, use Scarlett it. Scarlett Curtis said something really interesting when we were uh, doing a radio show together a few months ago. Because one of the presenters said that, you know, she's had a lot of privilege being the daughter of uh, Richard Curtis and Emma Freud. And she said, yeah, I totally have, but the idea of privilege is interesting because I didn't have health privilege. She said I was very ill as a teenager and I was literally, like, bed-bound for two years. And that, her saying that is something I think about again and again, is that there are so many different ways to be privileged. It's, it's difficult, though, because I've, I've felt that before um, when accusations of privilege have been thrown at me and I felt like somehow, though the privilege is tempered by personal struggle or pain and I have to say I believe that is wrong and I think the fact is and this is where it gets complicated pain and privilege live in two entirely Mm, separate places mm. and the fact that I had trauma in my younger life um, doesn't negate the fact that I went to a private school and had loving parents and a stable home the fact I had loving parents and a stable home does not mean that I am incapable of experiencing trauma or should not be allowed to speak about that trauma so it's 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 a difficult thing to wrap your head around um that both of these things can be true um but one doesn't cancel out the other no but i do find the i do find the different manifestations of privilege interesting i do think the idea that you can have a health privilege so someone who is very well in of themselves and who moves through the world very easily versus someone that has been you know dogged by illness mm-hmm. that just i just mm-hmm. found that idea really yeah and that's what i mean about how i think we need to like revisit yeah, the semantics the of this word because i think that privilege has become so much particularly with what we're talking about now with phoebe waller bridge so much a kind of economic um an economic shorthand and privilege really is, and I understand why it's become shorthand for that. And I do think it's been necessary for the discourse that we've been right in the depths of in these very new conversations that had to happen. But I also think that most people know that privilege is a much more philosophical notion than just numbers. Support for the Hilo comes from Christie. Christie was founded in 1850 by Henry Christie, inventor of the towel that we know today. Since then, Christie have continued to produce high-quality and long-lasting towels, bed linen and home accessories all designed in Manchester. Mine and Pandora's favourite activity, other than eating copious amounts of salt and vinegar crisps, is reading in bed or in the bath. Not together. We've never done that, but there's always time, I suppose. Find me a big enough bath. Christie is here for your bed and bath needs. Christie bed linens boast high thread counts, unique designs, and are made with the finest cotton. They are also known for their towels, especially the supreme high-grow range, which gets fluffier after every wash. I love a fluffy bath sheet. Very hard to find. And if you don't believe us, believe Wimbledon, because Christie are also the official towel supplier for the Wimbledon Championships, producing the iconic iconic towels used by the players on centre court. So join us and Andy Murray in living a Christie life and shop online at christie.co.uk and get 25% off your order at christie.co.uk with the code THEHILO. T's and C's apply. Thanks very much to Christie. fury this week over Prince Harry and the Duchess of Sussex who have refused to share the names of the godparents chosen for their newborn baby son, Archie. They released rather sweet pictures this weekend on Instagram no less, but many commentators remained cheesed off that they will not quote-unquote 
play the game. I don't even care who the godparents are, but why make such a snitty point of it unless he's trolling the very people who admire him? It seems so unjoyful, the opposite of what a christening is meant to be, wrote Camilla Long in typically lacerating tone for her Sunday Times column. Meanwhile, the royal biographer Penny Juna declared that the couple's demand for privacy was a terrible mistake. People love him and they're really happy for him. He's married Meghan and they've had the baby and they want to share in the joy of that. When is there not a royal storm in a teacup, I ask? Dolly, what do you make of this? So funny, I thought I knew what I was going to say about this topic, which is they should be allowed to do whatever the fuck they like and they don't owe us that level of personal information and anyone who thinks they do are completely pathetic. But, I mean, I do, I do still sort of think that, but I am interested in what Camilla Long wrote and I think she does have a point because the only people... The people who are desperate to know who the godparents of that child are not gossip-hungry people. They will be royal fans. The only people who are interested in knowing such a boring piece of information are the proper royal obsessive, like the people with the plates on the wall. So perhaps it does deny their loyal adorers something. I don't know. I think that a lot of this royal commentary is operating via a slightly archaic system where media coverage in the 90s used to be a picture of you know, Diana jogging in Hello magazine. And it's now the unutterable onslaught of 360 media surveillance that obviously demands a nuanced response from the royal family and probably more outright boundaries and barriers that once existed. I also think that this binary idea of privacy that you've either got it or you don't is neither helpful nor realistic. It reminds me of the Gorka era, this idea that people of a certain status should be surveyed at all times and be happy about it. And truly, I don't think that anyone should have to forego all their privacy, no matter how much of a platform they have. I also have to say that I don't care one to who the godparents are, and neither do I feel like I'm owed that information, but... Whilst it is the plate commemorative owning people that most want that information, it's also the media that then has that information. And the godparents are not royalty. They are regular citizens and they would inevitably end up being trailed by paparazzi as they hit up Tesco Metro. Yeah, that is true. Or, as half of them are likely to be American, Dwayne Reed. (laughs) I just don't know why it's an issue. You know, they released the pictures of him, something that I can't imagine they relish the idea of. I certainly wouldn't want to if I was them. Surely that's what people want to see the most. Also, you're totally right, and I hadn't thought of this. The press are constantly looking for new secret backdoors into information about the royals. And by disclosing the name of those godparents, as you said... Look at what happened to Thomas Markle. Like, that man was effectively destroyed and she's now in touch with none of her family except, you know, her mother. You're so right. I totally... What happened there? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I also don't think we can exist in a world where the options are entire privacy or none at all. And I do think they're allowed to exercise boundaries that they feel are appropriate as well as opening their lives up. And to be fair to them, they really have opened their lives up when you think about that, I thought, very gushy, very intimate engagement interview that they did, which I found very personal. And the statements that Harry's made about Meghan... um, and the baby photos that they've shared and the fucking wedding. I mean, I do really think they have shared more with millions and millions and millions of people than most of us would feel comfortable sharing with more than 10 people. There's always a slightly tricky issue with the royals, that thing that turns them into sort of pawns and play things, which makes me feel, quite frankly, nauseous as we expect them to smile and nod all the while, in that they are funded with taxpayers' money. Camilla Long continues furiously. And so we have it, a royal christening in a building we paid for, conducted by a bishop whose salary we help foot, featuring royals whose lives we bankroll, in clothes we've paid for, sitting on seats we bought, waiting on staff we fund, with celebs who aren't even sure they want to be celebs. And Piers Morgan tweeted, Harry and Meghan need to stop playing these dumb cake-and-eat-it games with the media and public. If you want your home costs paid by the taxpayer, you reveal this kind of info, that's the deal. So he's referring to Meghan and Harry's recent house renovation at uh, Frogmore Cottage, which cost £2.4 Although, let it be said that the infinitely less criticised Kate and William's um, house renovations cost £4 How do you know about all these house renovation costs? It's been in the news. I think that's something we should consider, why these two get criticised for things that Kate and William did not. Mm, I think, yeah. It is it is really hard to stomach those kind of 
extraordinarily high renovation costs when you consider how independently wealthy they are. Harry's reportedly worth 14 million and Meghan is worth 4 million. Um, and they've obviously got, you know, buckets more to come. But they also can't get paid to work. Meghan will never earn another penny again. And they're constantly parading around, you know, diplomatic tours and charitable engagements and gardening openings and uh, lots of like really important stuff, actually, like mm. charity stuff and hospitals and doing the kind of work that anyone who has events built into their work life knows is utterly, utterly exhausting. Um, so there's always that to balance up mm. is that they don't get paid for that. I mean, I wouldn't wish royalty on anyone, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, as you say, the taxpayer stuff does make it more uncomfortable and more tricky. And I have to say, I've said this before on the podcast, I really don't see the point of a royal family. I'm oh sort dear, of... my mum's going to weep again. Do you remember last sorry. time we talked about not being a royalist? She I'm said if it wasn't of... for your very good legs, she wouldn't be a fan anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not a fan of the royal family. If I were running the world, it would be one of the first things I abolished. Oh God, I get a slight shiver the idea of you running the world, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> None of it makes any sort of sense to me economically or democratically. But even as someone with that quite extreme stance, I can still recognise that they should be allowed their own autonomous lives and identities away from the public for their own basic sanity, first and foremost. As most criticism of Meghan and Harry tends to centre on, the couple have been accused yet again of misunderstanding their specific celebrity status, which is royalty, not Hollywood. This criticism started with Meghan's £57,000 Ralph and Rousseau engagement dress. But to be honest, it would have started regardless because of Meghan's career as an actor, most famously in Suits, which was seemingly equated in Britain like it would have been 200 years ago, i.e. actor and prostitute being (laughs) synonymous. Instead of being applauded for her success and independent wealth, Meghan's fame has been constantly denigrated and dismissed as tawdry, which I find really riveting. Anytime they do something remotely out of tradition, they get called Hollywood. For example, their demands for privacy are very Hollywood, even though it's apparently Harry who was more adamant about not making Archie's godparents' names public. Meghan inevitably gets blamed and her actress past gets pulled up. You know, she's difficult, foreign, famous, American, and, because this is never not relevant, mixed race. And I do think whenever we're comparing conversations in the media between Meghan and any other person who's married a royal we have to observe how much there is this kind of bubbling sense of othering that comes into it and as you said that encompasses many things most uncomfortably race I do think I mean I think it's extraordinary that you can follow them on Instagram I'm just thinking about how much insight you have into their life their lives now as royals like surely the fact that they're on Instagram is like massive for fans of course this has not stopped all the speculation with everyone from serena williams to stylist jessica mulroney tipped to be in the running barack obama was even included in the bookies odds at 33 to 1 i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today Pandora alerted me to a Radio 4 programme this week which is right up my street called The Death of the Eccentric. The programme is a short documentary presented by the writer Will Self in which he goes in search of a dying species, the eccentric, as he believes the relationship between true eccentricity and mainstream society is complex, dynamic and now in serious trouble. The programme explores the nature of eccentricity, the clichés of eccentricity, the modern eccentric, how psychology plays into eccentricity, and how race and class play into the pursuit of eccentricity. Most interestingly, he looks at how late capitalism and online culture might be the nail in the coffin of true, authentic, unguarded, dangerous eccentricity. Now, Panda, first and foremost, have you done the quiz? So I sent Doll a quiz that the BBC published alongside uh, the programme with Will Self, which where you can find out how eccentric you are via answering a series of questions. I did the quiz, which might be the funniest quiz the BBC has ever <laughs> done. One question is, what is your favourite mode of transport? Is it car, 
bike or besaddled llama. Anyway, it turns out I am a bit of an eccentric. Disappointingly, so am I, Panda. My favourite questions were, how many hats are you currently wearing? And what do you say when you answer the phone? The options being, hello, yes, and sandwiches. (laughs) My result, as I say, I was kind of disappointed with. I found out that I was a bit of an eccentric, and they informed me, while you don't necessarily wear a Viking helmet (laughs) to formal events, there is a danger of you suddenly purchasing a tandem and gluing bits of wallpaper to it for some reason and giving it a comical name like Lady Maisie. So be careful. I want to write this quiz. It's really funny. (laughs) Comical quizzes aside, I am utterly fascinated by Will Self's prophecy about the death of eccentricity. And it's something that I've been thinking about in an abstract way for a while. I often think about my favourite cultural figures in history and wonder how they would be received now. And a lot of the time, I do think there's a certain type of true, quite messy slightly dark eccentricity that would be unpalatable for modern tastes i've banged on about this on the podcast before but it's why the kind of strangely regressive modern trend for puritanism worries me so much because i don't know if a novelist like patricia highsmith who famously kept pet slugs in a bra or an actor like oliver reed or a writer like a.a gill or an artist like Dali would be digestible enough for modern palettes but then again i think the definition of eccentricity will vary so much from person to person and one man's kind of delightful uh, quirks and oddities could be another man's utter horror. How would you define eccentricity? Funnily enough, I wouldn't define A.A. Gill as an, uh, as an eccentric. Oh, really? I think I would have defined him as a genius, but not an eccentric. I would define an eccentric as someone who lives outside of conventional norms, kind of outside of as many conventional norms mm. as possible. And having listened to the programme, I would still define it as that. But I think that some people I did think of an eccentric possibly are not actually true eccentrics because they are too accepted and celebrated by mainstream culture to be that. The recurring themes that kept coming up in the programme were that eccentrics are not concerned by what other people think of them. They are curious, they are anti-conformity, and they are often... I hadn't thought of this before, but it is true when you think about kind of historic eccentrics. They're idealists who, in their own unique or convoluted way, think that they have a method of making the world a better place. I think that eccentricity has, to a large extent, been commodified, and that, to quote Will Self, the world-beating weirdos of the past are being replaced by mere performers. Yes, exactly. There's a very interesting bit in which sociologist Laurie Taylor talks about the difference between affected eccentricity and true eccentricity. Now, when you actually look at the internet and you see what is going on on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, there's this terrible sadness about it as people try to take all sorts of stances that they know are going to be just sufficiently controversial to generate a small legion of followers, but not so controversial. Obviously, they're going to be thrown off the thing or they're going to be asked to appear in public and do something to validate their views. They can strut there and wave and shout in order to attract what followers. Eccentrics don't have followers. Is it that the web just relentlessly commoditizes the whole time? Yes, as soon as there is a sufficient audience for a particular sort of web aberration, then it's going to be marketized and you're going to be able to buy into it. You're going to be able to buy the clothes and know the slogans and see the films and hum the music. These apparent positions can't be individual by necessity. So that's a very strong statement. You'd be prepared to assert that engagement with social media kills any eccentricity. It's like a kind of virus that attacks your eccentricity. Absolutely. I mean, it announces yourself on a public stage as a bearer of particular views, whereas an eccentric, they just are themselves. I do think it's a sad inevitability that in a world where very public and constant declarations of self and ideology and personal politics for in the most part, mass approval means that there is little room for these kind of instinctive quirks. It's so much harder to define eccentricity now with online culture when so much of presentation of identity is strategic and the whole point of being eccentric, as Laurie Taylor suggests, is that it is totally unstrategic. Mm. Traditionally, eccentrics did not seek approval and, as he said, they did not want followers. That That would have been an idea that would have repulsed them. I also feel like a lot of men previously deemed eccentric, we actually now know to be very problematic. Yes. Like Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris, John McCrerick. I think that's very interesting. And actually, that's an avenue they didn't go down with this programme because you can only go down so many 
avenues with a kind of one hour documentary but I do think it would have been interesting to look at um, how eccentricity perhaps has been used in the past as a distraction to take pretty abhorrent behaviour or abusive behaviour um, out of focus because uh, or to facilitate or to facilitate even. it exactly do you remember all of that oh Jim, Jimmy Savile he it's too obvious for him to be a pervert he must just be an eccentric yes exactly I think that that's a very interesting point another interesting segment of the program is when Will self examines the intersection between eccentricity and mental health mm. his worry is that strangeness is in danger of being pathologised or medicated in today's world and um, interestingly a a psychologist he speaks to who specialises in eccentricity said it's only 20% of perceived eccentrics who are studied are diagnosed with a personality disorder. I do think it's interesting to examine waning eccentricity with more open and positive conversations about mental health. I wonder if what was once regarded as certain eccentric behaviours in public figures or people more familiar to us in our family or people that we work with, we now know to be not just kookiness, but behavioural manifestations of a mental health issue such as depression, anxiety or addiction. I certainly have witnessed conversations between people of my parents' generation or my parents or older people talking with fondness about someone's entertaining oddities um, who it's very obvious to me that they're in the middle of a mental health crisis. Yeah, I agree. That's really interesting. Um, uh, Talking to older people when they are slightly shocked by what they, what is, I suppose, a wave of anxiety. Yeah. Um, And they wonder where it's come from. And they say that no one was ever anxious and no one ever got depression in their day. And you think, well, I wonder what it was written off as, you know? It's exactly... Reminds me of... I always think of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper in 1892, which is an account of a woman with a uh, mental health disorder. But, you know, just... They were dismissed as... uh, Particularly women as stressed or hysterics Mm. or overtired Mm. or anemic, I think, was one that Mm. quite often... uh, Or perhaps pertains to this conversation. Just a bit strange. Yeah. I was really interested by that 20% who have uh, micro-psychotic episodes, Dr David Weeks says. He sounds very like David Sedaris, incidentally. His voice? Yeah, Yeah. very like him. Uh, Micro-psychotic episodes or schizophrenia. I did love when Dr Weeks says that the major motivation of eccentrics, which you mentioned earlier, Dolly, is curiosity. Mm. Um, I think maybe that's where our tiny bit comes from (laughs) Yomi Adegoke also featured on the program and spoke about how traditional British eccentricity is almost I'm paraphrasing her she didn't use this phrase but how I read it is it's almost a kind of white luxury to be able to lean into the more outrageous or weird or precarious parts of your personality which I hadn't thought of but I think is is it's very true she pointed out that black men are three times more likely to be sectioned than white men so that kind of hobby of totally carefree peculiarity is one that historically has been easier for white people yeah that's an interesting point about how eccentricity is viewed as dependent on race and also i find the idea of um how it changes across the um class register really interesting there's a bit in jailbirds a book I often referenced by Mim Skinner, where she says that her mother, as a middle-class uh, artist, was permitted the kind of eccentricities and quirks that would have been seen as threatening or um, suspicious in inmates in prison. I think there's an argument that the death of eccentricity might actually be a sign of progression. At one point, Will Self uses Grace and Perry as an example of a modern eccentric, and Laurie Taylor scoffs at this he idea. Does, he scoffs, you're right. He really does. He dismisses Grace and Perry as an eccentric and says he's entirely mainstream and embraced by the masses and even embraced by the establishment. Grace and Perry was awarded a CBE. And I do wonder if eccentricity thrives in an oppressive society, which increasingly and luckily Britain isn't. We are obviously still not a society that accepts all people for who they are without judgment or danger, but we are on the whole more culturally accepting than we ever have been. And I wonder if that makes not conforming much harder. 
Yeah, I was also really interested by that point about Grace and Perry, that rather than being an eccentric, Laurie says he uses sartorial indicators of small differences. Will Self, as well, is furious to find out that he too is not an eccentric, just a man of small differences. He also tells Amanda Fielding with glee, she's the Aristo known for trepanning herself in the 70s on film. Um, and he tells her that she's not an eccentric. But I still don't know about that. I think someone who drills... Okay, so trepanning is drilling a hole in your head. Mm. And she did it um, live. It, it was filmed. And I was looking at pictures again of it last night. And I, I actually feel sick thinking about it. But anyway, <laughs> so she says... So she's, he says she's not an eccentric at all. And she says, no, 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 I'm not. But anyway, I'm still... I'm, jury's out for me on that one. But I am obsessed with Elf, the artist, who says she likes giving birth to the earth. Oh, I like Delph as well. I think that whilst we may think we accept eccentrics, there's a bit where Laurie says, we love ourselves for loving someone who appears to be eccentric. It allows us to think we have a wider boundary for toleration. I think that was really interesting. We may not accept them as much as we think we do. I was reading Bitch, a book written by Elizabeth Wurzel in the 90s yesterday for research. And she writes that from a distance, we all admire the insane person, the creative genius and the colourful type. But up close, no one wants to be bothered. And if this is true for men, it's doubly or trebly true for women. We have always been willing to cannibalise those brilliant creatures who shine but really and truly we would much prefer that in our dealings with them they behave they play by the rules I thought that was really interesting Mm. I got another ear piercing yesterday and I just don't think that cuts the mustard did you where is it there up top did it hurt no it was fine actually did you go to like a proper kind of grungy piercing salon or did you go to Topshop on Oxford Street <laughs> no I went to this great you went to King's Cross no called Sacred Gold but just as you were saying that I was just like what What are my like little aesthetic markers that I do to try and be eccentric and I was like well, if a woman drilling a hole in her head doesn't pass the eccentricity test then one little pinprick no, in my cartilage is not, <laughs> not going to work I'm so glad that you pointed me in the direction of this programme. I really, really enjoyed it. And from slugs in your bra to Chris Eubanks' monocle, I love eccentricity and I hope the eccentric never dies. In fact, I think we should all make an effort to wear two hats. And, as Yomi puts it, to be able to lean into our strangeness. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Bye-bye. Bye. Because you brought me love I want to thank you Jesus Because you taught me